Hey, good morning, church. When I was a kid, I remember this magazine that was Sports Illustrated for kids, and in it, they used to have an article, uh, maybe every month or so, that would talk about signs of the apocalypse. Now, I don't know who came up with this idea, but it was this funny running column where they would talk about teams that were winning that hadn't won in years or records that were falling that were supposed to have never been broken, and they would list these things out as a sign of the apocalypse. Now, what did they mean by the apocalypse? They meant the end. It's all coming to an end. If this record can fall, if this team can win, then uh, the end must be here. And you've probably seen some similar things in our news or in pop culture over the years. I know there was a movie a few years before I was born that I, I haven't seen called Apocalypse Now. I understand it was about the Vietnam War. Uh, there's been other times in, in culture when people will talk about the zombie apocalypse or a vampire apocalypse, when the world ends in a, a fictitious story because of some kind of uh, zombie disease that wipes out mankind except for a few survivors. And when people talk about apocalypse that way, what they mean is the destruction of everything, or the world order has collapsed. Life as we know it is erased. The world ends. And it's interesting that we use the word apocalypse in that way today. In fact, you could probably find that definition for apocalypse in many dictionaries. Because the word comes to us uh, as a transliterated Greek word, not a translated Greek word. Translated is when you take a word from the Greek language and then you find a roughly equivalent English word and you actually use the English word. Transliteration is when you aren't sure what English word to use and so you just take the letters of the Greek word and you put the same letters in English and, and you just basically write the Greek word out using English letters. So another example of this in scripture is the word baptize. In the Greek, baptize had uh, several meanings, like to dip, to plunge, to wash, to, to immerse. And so in English, because there has been some controversy about which English words to use, or maybe some uncertainty, um, translators from very early on have chosen to just transliterate the word as from baptizo in the Greek to baptize in the English instead of choosing one of those other English words. And the word apocalypse is having the same kind of experience uh, in, our, in our Bible text sometimes, like when you think about the Revelation, that last book of the New Testament, it's often called the Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of John, uh, or maybe more accurately, the Apocalypse of Jesus. So what's happening is they've taken the Greek word and they've just transliterated it. And then because people see the book of Revelation and think about it as the end of time, apocalypse somehow gradually got this meaning in English that the end has come, that this is the end of the world as we know it. Now that's a pretty important idea because in today's scripture reading, Matthew chapter 11, some people are struggling with the end of the world as they know it. And they're unhappy with all of the options that are presented to them. And I feel like maybe today, in 2020, like the year of years, right? I mean, fires in Australia, pandemic globally, racial unrest all around our nation, and in fact, around the world. This week, 
we tried to go outside and go on a walk and it said the air quality was unhealthy because of dust from a Saharan a dust storm that had, had blown around all the way across the Atlantic and over here. Now there's talk of a new swine flu pandemic that could possibly happen from China. Um, we lost Kobe Bryant this year. Right here in our church family, we've lost dearly loved ones. Thibodeau family, I'm thinking about y'all this week, praying for y'all. Gary was a wonderful man. Uh, the Hook family lost Carolyn this year. Others have lost loved ones and been separated uh, from them because of the disease or, or just because of other things that have happened. This has been a hard year. And here's the point. In many ways, this year to us, uh, in our friendships, in our society, in our uh, security of our health, in our security of our bank accounts, all the people that are out of work because of the pandemic, this feels like the end of the world as we know it. It's like apocalypse now. <laughs> like right now, it seems like uh, the things that we leaned on are shaken. The world is, is shaken. And so right now, we might be experiencing some of the emotions that the people in Matthew 11 are experiencing. In today's reading, which is only a, a small part of this chapter, we see a, a couple of things. One, Jesus talking about the way the people treated John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and then himself. And then we have another reading where Jesus is inviting people to come to know him so that they can also know the Father and that he will provide rest for those who are weary and burdened. Now that probably feels like you and me in some ways, weary and burdened. Just knocked my remote over. So there's just one more thing. It broke. One more thing to add to the list of 2020 calamities. <laughs> oh well. So here's these people that are confronted with a world that is changing and it seems like no one is at ease. And here we are in a world that seems like it's changing. And, and I don't think many people really feel at ease. And uh, what does apocalypse have to do with that? Well, the word apocalypse in the Greek actually does not mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean the end of the world as we know it. The word apocalypse in Greek uh, has nothing to do with zombies. It has nothing to do with pandemics or storms. It has nothing to do with racial unrest. The word apocalypse in the Greek means to reveal, for something to be seen. Now here's just a small, a two actually, little small tie-ins to last week. Last week we talked about a father and a son, Abraham and Isaac, who went up onto Moriah in a very difficult circumstance, a command from God they probably couldn't fully understand. And father and son participated together to obey what God had commanded. And then on the mountain of the Lord, what they needed was provided. And that little Hebrew word means that it was seen. The Lord was seen, or the Lord saw to it. You remember that from a week ago? So there's two little things that tie in to this week. This week in Matthew 11, people are also trying to see what God is doing in the world. And a lot of people are having trouble seeing it. They're shaken. It feels like the end of the world as they know it. And the Father and the Son, but this time the Heavenly Father and Son, are participating, are working together to make a difference, to provide to people what they need and to welcome people in. So the second part of our, of our reading here is going to be this invitation from Jesus. And I want to make a couple comments on Matthew 11 as a whole. 
because I'm not going to take the time to read all of Matthew 10 and 11 today, but Matthew 10 and 11 go together. In the book of Matthew, there's five great discourses or speeches, and this little speech, 10 and 11, is a unit. It kind of fits together, it goes together, and there's some thoughts that are being developed. If you want to go a little deeper, you might read 10 and 11 together this week, maybe on your own or maybe as a small group, and see how some of these themes will emerge even more. But in chapter 11 specifically, there are people whose expectations are shaken. In fact, I would say Matthew 11, the theme of this chapter is that Jesus is not meeting expectations. He is not meeting the expectations of many different people. Jesus is offering, uh, at the end of this chapter, a fresh revelation, a fresh apocalypse of the Father. He's allowing the Father to be seen. What the people really need, what they really need provided, is being seen and revealed by Jesus. But it is not what people expect. It's not what his cousin John expects. It's not what the people in these different cities expect. Uh, and in fact, the whole generation, Jesus says, doesn't seem to be able to accept what John was doing and what Jesus is doing. In this chapter, Jesus's revelation of the Father is primarily seen in how the blind and the lame and the sick and the deaf and the dead and the poor and the demon-possessed are treated. And these people then Jesus will refer to, I think he's using this one collective term to refer to them as the children, or the word in Greek could mean infants. It's like a little tiny baby that's so small it doesn't even have its own autonomy yet. This word is sometimes used in the Greek of simple people, like, like the sophisticated people would call the unlearned people, the day laborers, the regular guy, the blue collar workers, Just they'd call them like the infants, the simple people. And Jesus groups all these people with their needs under this term, the infants or the children. Or another term he uses is the weary and burdened. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. So for Jesus, when John, John his cousin, starts to doubt, John who called him the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, John who in the womb of his mother Elizabeth leapt for joy because the Holy Spirit in the womb uh, somehow identified to him that in the belly of his uh, his Aunt Mary, that the Lord, the Savior of humankind, was there growing in her womb. So somehow the John, as an infant still in the womb, leaps for joy within Elizabeth. This John, who literally from the womb, uh, growing up and into his ministry, knew that Jesus was the Son of God, begins to doubt, because Jesus isn't what he expected. It may seem to John, who's in prison, by the way, that his whole world is falling apart, that the apocalypse has come, that they've been betrayed, let down, that this guy is not the Messiah. Whatever is going on, he doubts. And he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really the one? And Jesus's evidence to John is, look at what's happening to the blind, the lame, the sick, the deaf, the dead, the poor, the demon-possessed, these infants, these weary and burdened ones. That's your evidence that I'm revealing to you and to the world the kingdom of God and that the Father is really for us and that the Son is really for us and that those who are burdened are welcome to come and that they'll find rest for their whole beings. The Greek word 
that we translate as soul probably does not mean that just the immaterial part of you will be at rest. It means your whole embodied self. It is most often translated your life in Greek. It's, it's not as often translated soul. And so this word means your very life, your very being, your very self will find rest in the Father through the Son. What a great promise, especially for those whose whole beings, from their skin on the outside to their spiritual life on the inside, have been misunderstood, have been ignored, have been set aside, have been marginalized, have been forgotten. Jesus says, your whole being finds rest in me. And he says, the Father has chosen to reveal himself to these simple ones, these infants, because it pleases him. So God the Father and Jesus participate like Abraham the Father and Isaac to bring some gift to the world, a gift that's really needed for all of these people. And instead of going just to the wise, the learned, the the people who have status and power, God says, no, I will give it to anyone who is willing to come to the Son. And Jesus, the Son, says, it's mine to give. And then he says, so you're invited. These are his actual words. He says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is like, I get the choice of who I'm going to apocalypse the Father to, who I'm going to reveal him to. And then he says, come to me. Come to me, all of you. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your very beings. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Jesus expects us to learn from him, not to just come to him to be confirmed in what we already think, but to learn from him. Not to come to him just as a yes man, to stamp his approval on the life we've already chosen, but to learn from him. And to learn that sometimes when it comes to how are we treating the blind, the lame, the sick, the deaf, the dead, the poor, the demon-possessed, these infants, these weary and burdened, maybe we have something from Jesus to learn. And so an important aspect of this chapter is that Jesus does not just say this to people, not just to individuals, but to groups of people, to societies. He, in one place, uses the word generation. And in another word, another word or place, he, he talks about cities, whole cities. And maybe we overlook sometimes that Jesus talks to generations and to societies. And we think that Jesus only talks to individuals, but he does not. This is why the part that we read today about um, John the Baptist and Jesus is so important. Let me read it again. To what can I compare this generation? Jesus asked. So Jesus looks around at his world, his time, and he says, what can I compare this whole group of people, this whole generation to? And then he gives this little verse of, of poetry. It's like a little parable in poetry. They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now in his very creative style, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, um, he didn't translate this. He interpreted it a little differently. And, and this is the way he wrote it. I think it's helpful. We wanted to skip rope and you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. And then Jesus uh, interprets his little parable or his little poem. John came fasting and they called him crazy. 
I came feasting, and they called me a lush, a friend of the riffraff. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now that's Eugene Peterson's message, a very artistic and poetic rendering. Let me read it from the NIV. It's a little closer to a thought-by-thought translation here. Uh, John came neither eating or drinking. So John abstained from most, most foods and from wine. All he was eating out there were some locusts and wild honey and drinking water. And the people said about him, well, he has a demon. See, John was the ascetic of ascetics, the strict of the strict, the pious of the pious, the roof follower of the roof followers, right? The one who was going to strip away all the luxuries of life and go out into the desert and be a prophet and with his fiery preaching and his pious living, show the people an example of how to change the world. And Jesus says, when the people saw that, they just said, ah, that's demon possession. In other words, they excused themselves. The generation said, we don't have to do that. That's too extreme. Now, we know for a fact that that's not the way every person treated John. Many people went to John and listened to him, and their lives were changed. They They were baptized. They were disciples of him. They were changing their lives. And so Jesus isn't saying that literally no one listened to John. But about the generation, he says, they dismissed him and called him demon possessed. And then Jesus says about himself, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And again, we know not every person rejected Jesus. His disciples are following him. In fact, at this time, crowds are listening to him. They haven't all deserted him yet. Jesus is fairly popular. But yet he'll look around at the generation and he'll say, the generation doesn't get it. The generation is broken. The society is broken. They call John demon-possessed. They call me a lush a drunkard. And specifically, this phrase, a glutton and a drunkard, is straight out of Deuteronomy when parents had a willful child who was disobedient and they took that child to the leaders and they said, this kid is so bad, he's so willfully disobedient of God's law, he is a, he is a glutton and a drunkard and he deserves to be executed. That's harsh, like really a harsh idea. These people are using those words about Jesus and they're saying, this guy eats all the foods, they have the feasts, they drink the wine, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And look at this, who are his friends? Tax collectors and sinners. The small people in society, the infants, okay? The people who are unlearned, the people who are unwise, the people who aren't like us, the people who do things differently, the people that we can't approve of. They say, he's friends with them, so he's a lush. And Jesus says, I look at the generation and there's no pleasing them. I can't meet the expectations of this generation. And neither could John. They throw everything out the window. And then he does, he talks about the cities and he says roughly the same kind of thing. If these other pagan cities would have seen the miracles done in the cities of Galilee, they would have repented. But these, these Galilean cities who have seen so many miracles of Jesus' ministry, they, they don't change. But we know that people changed. He's talking about the society. Now there's a few warnings for us here and a few reminders for us here. And one of them is that at the same moment, God can look at people and say to them, come to me, you're weary and you're burdened, I will give you rest. And he can speak a word of judgment to the society and say there are systemic issues. There's real systemic problems. There's problems of injustice. There's problems of uh, privilege. 
There's problems of people being ignored, of their problems going unanswered. There are little people all around, there are infants all around who are in desperate need of help. And this generation has missed it. All of the prophets that come to them, they find an excuse not to listen to them. God can look at the generation and say, there are systemic problems here that are so bad that this generation doesn't get it. And that doesn't mean that some people don't come to Jesus, because some people do. And I wonder how that might help us as we reflect on our world today. Remember, Jesus is this meek and gentle, right? Humble, he says. He calls himself here in the NIV, he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. In other words, Jesus is not being presumptuous with people. He's receiving them. Jesus is probably the kind of person that we would really like to sit down with and meet. Someone that we would feel accepted, listened, heard. Someone who would love us with this rugged kind of love. Scott McKnight defines love in his book, A Fellowship of Difference, as being rugged love. When I am with you, in other words, I listen to you, I am for you, so I want you to succeed, and I'm with you and for you unto formation to Jesus. Notice the order. It's very important. The order that Scott McKnight puts those in. I'm not going to judge how much like Jesus you are on the front end and then decide if I'm with you and for you. I'm going to be with you and for you first unto formation to Christ-likeness. Maybe that's the little key that this generation needed, the apocalypse they needed, being with Jesus, being for each other, being for the, uh, the outcast, the infants, the weary, and the burdened. And being for them and with them unto Christ-likeness. Now, that's a prayer that you and I can pray together and a hope that we can share together. That no matter our different opinions, ideologies, perspectives, thoughts, passions, cares in this world, we can be with each other and for each other in a rugged, committed way unto formation to Christ-likeness. And we can recognize at the same moment that our world is going to hell, but not all the people in the world are, are demon-possessed or lushes. Not all people on either side of any aisle are, are all demons and all lushes. They're not, you can't just categorize people like that into this side is right and this side is wrong. In fact, when we start thinking that way, what Jesus saw here is you end up not approving of any sides at all. And Jesus says, this, this is wearying work. This is burdensome work. So you're weary, you're burdened, come to me and I'll give rest to your whole being. Now, how do you need that hope today? How do you need that promise from Jesus today? Come to him. Come to him in prayer, in song. Write it out to him. Write a poem for him. Write a, write a verse for Jesus. Write your prayer out for him today as together we look and we see that we also are the infants. No matter how schooled we are, we're not wise compared to God. No matter how knowledgeable, no matter how righteous we might feel or how good we might feel about how we've done life, we're, we're, we're not that much. And, and once we in humility understand that I don't have it all together, that my world is being shaken, we can come to a God who is secure and firm and steadfast and sure. And he says, I'll give rest to your entire being. I love you, church. We miss being with you. 
July 19th, mark the calendar, our first opportunity to be back together. And I'm so looking forward to it. God bless you. Amen.